0: Hello, and welcome to the last of a mini-sode of the Modernist Podcast. Now, this episode feels quite meta, as our theme today is Digital Modernisms, with one of my favourite ever scholars, Shauna Ross, who has been hugely kind to me during my time in academia, and I can't thank her enough. Digital humanities is obviously a very important subject to me, running the Modernist Podcast and attempting to make academia a little more accessible through digital means, and having Shauna on today was a really great privilege. So let's dive straight in. Shauna, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Hi, my name is Shauna Ross. I'm an assistant professor at Texas A&M University, where I teach British literature and the digital humanities. My co-written or co-edited books include Reading Modernism with Machines, Using Digital Humanities in the Classroom, and the forthcoming Humans at Work in the Digital Age, Histories of Digital Textual Labor. I also do a little bit in Victorian, literature as well. Uh, My current book project is called Charlotte Bronte at the Anthropocene, which investigates the Bronte family as witnesses of the onset of the Anthropocene.
0: That's great. And how did you first become interested in your research?
1: I became interested in the digital humanities in a very organic way. I was in a graduate seminar on WB Yeats, and I wanted to classify the types of dialogue poems that he was writing. And basically it was a genre question, and I wanted to see if there were subgenres of what I called dialogue poems, where Yeats would stage a debate between two or more people. And I realized that because his oeuvre was so big, I was doing a lot of counting. And so I found myself very naturally gravitating towards spreadsheets and doing a lot of counting. And so when I came to my seminar with my draft of a seminar paper, it was appended with a bunch of spreadsheets graphs, charts, tables and figures. And everyone pretty much started laughing at me. They didn't understand what I was doing. And those who did think they understood um, what I was doing thought it was just kind of an empty bean counting. And they thought it was actually a retrogressive move. Now, I thought I recognized that counting is a way of thinking. When I do statistical analysis of digital works, I do it by hand. I don't do it at scale via algorithms, but instead I do really hands-on work with really kind of simple tools and machines that many people probably wouldn't really recognize as the digital humanities because they're everyday tools that we use normally, like spreadsheets. But at the same time, I'm also interested in optimizing workflows, and that's a very fancy way of just saying how can we do our work as scholars better, more efficiently. This involves re-understanding the basics. How do we read? How do we write? How do we communicate as scholars? And how do we teach? So for me, using technologies to do this more efficiently is kind of one of the best promises of technology. But then on the other hand, I also want to acknowledge the pressure of the job market. In order to get my name out there, I realized I needed to um, use the internet, and social media and website building to show other people what I was doing in the classroom and what I was doing with my research. Ultimately, I found that that Twitter was truly a medium that's interesting inherently as an academic practice. And that's really what I think jumpstarted my interest in the digital humanities. That is, recognising that something that began as an efficiency tool started in itself to change my research in ways that I hadn't understood and itself become an object of that research, which was very exciting.
0: Amazing. And if it's fair for me to say, you seem a bit like an intellectual magpie, and I mean that as a huge compliment, but why do you think that is?
1: I get that question a lot, actually. Um, And usually I try to say something like, well, I'm just very curious. Um, by my nature, I get bored very easily. I want to be doing multiple things at once. And that sounds really good, but I think it's something of a, of a faint. Um, because really, it's also kind of about the job market. So what happened um, kind of in my journey um, from graduate school to a tenure-track job, I basically spent four years as an adjunct that's not long at all. But it was long enough to impact my research trajectory. So when I was an adjunct, I couldn't really teach what I wanted. And I think this is a really universal experience among many adjuncts. And the one way that I could teach literature was actually to teach Victorian literature classes. Right? So that's not that wasn't all of my training. I did some graduate work in Victorian studies, but the bulk of it was in modernism. But As an adjunct at the particular place that I was at, those classes were reserved for other faculty members. So I had to adapt. And as a result, I started looking more into the Victorian aspects of my existing research. Over time, this ended up really being an important investment in my time and labor, meaning that I became more and more interested in these things, right, and how my research was relevant in the Victorian era. It became more and more exciting as a research prospect. And now that I have a tenure track job, and am able to teach in modernism, I've noted that there are still costs associated with my four-year uh, of labor kind of teaching Victorian literature. Uh, because if teaching and literature, teaching and literature and research and literature are combined, you can't really invest in teaching for four years and it not have an impact on your research. So this is just kind of practical advice. Something that I've noticed is that the ways that I tread water as an adjunct still deeply impact my research today. The other way in which it affects it today is through the digital humanities i wanted to learn some new powerful skills that will allow me to maintain my own professional website to create my own course websites and to encourage my students to do public humanities works so i had to gain some rudimentary skills um, just in basic website building in order to make these make this thing happen um, so ultimately yes i am an intellectual magpie Um, Ultimately, I realized that what unites all of my work in the Victorian era, the modernist era in the digital humanities, is that I am fascinated in seeing how literary style evolves as a response to changes in the built spaces around authors, especially as a result of technological change.
0: Uh, And something I'm really interested in is your recent work on radical bibliography. Can you tell us more about
1: that? It's something of an accident, uh, but a very, very happy accident. So I was assigned our 603. So this is our graduate course in bibliography and research methods. This was a class that I had been terrified of as a graduate student, and I somehow managed to get a doctorate without taking it myself. When I was asked at Texas A&M to teach this my second year of the tenure clock, I was terrified. I didn't know what to do. How could I teach something I had never been taught? And so I did a deep dive into syllabi, which is my normal reaction to a problem, which is look up a bunch of stuff, read a lot of things and try to synthesize them and come up with a kind of model of the average syllabus for something like this. So I did that and that assuaged my fears a little bit, Um, but also uh, just kind of being aware of what was going on in bibliography at my institution really helped as well. Um, so, for example, Amy Earhart in my department and Tonisha Taylor, um, who's at Prairie View A&M, just a few miles away, are working on the Digital Black Bibliography Project. And former graduate students here at Texas A&M, Kate Osmond and Kate Coker, created the Women in Book History Bibliography. Both of these projects understand that bibliography, the practice of assembling the existing objects around a particular topic, can actually solve intellectual problems that we have, especially ones of representation. People who seem to fall off the edge of history, authors, writers, and voices uh, that we may not even know exist, can become findable if we create adequate bibliographies. So essentially watching my colleagues do this made me realize that bibliography is actually a very exciting field. I had recently read Jerome McGann's A New Republic of Letters, where he writes that in the digital age, all of our cultural heritage has to be rewritten and saved all over again. And even though when I first read his book, I was like, gee whiz, I hope I'm not one of those people who has to do it. Now I'm like, oh, wow. (laughs) It's really quite powerful um, to be one of those people who sets up what's going to be visible to new scholars over the next few decades, over the next few centuries, that's a a large amount of power. And even if bibliography means a lot of repetitive work, it doesn't mean it's not powerful. It doesn't mean that it is not theoretically inflected. It doesn't mean it's not radical. In the context of modernism, I've been talking about radical bibliography in terms of radical citation practices. And by that, I mean, how do we give attribution to people who influence our thought, but who have not yet had the kind of publications that would make citation practices seem a little easy? So traditionally, citation is all about the books and journals, right? And recently, the rewriting of the MLA style in the eighth guide shows us that, gee whiz, that's just not true anymore. Um, The kinds of sources that we use on a day-to-day basis are so varied, so diverse, so vibrant, and so varied, right? They're in so many different types of forms. And so we can use that to show our intellectual appreciation for Scholars who have not yet been able to find um, their, or rather, people who haven't been able to access networks that end in very privileged or esteemed print contexts, right? These are people who may not be asked to provide a chapter for the next Cambridge Companion to whatever, right? So essentially, if you see great conference papers by graduate students... If you have a productive email exchange with one of your own graduate student, those kinds of things can be cited. So essentially, take a very broad view of what can be cited and cite people who have not become visible in the kind of powerful ways that traditional academic citation practices seem to reward. Cite everything. Cite everyone.
0: Now, I have to say it again, you've always made me feel really at home in modernist studies. and I can't thank you enough for that. But why is community building so important to you?
1: No scholar is an island. Right? We all are taught by people. We all teach people. And most of the time we are simultaneously teaching and being taught by other people. So really it's just understanding that the myth of the isolated scholar is truly a myth. And that we are always borrowing ideas from people even when we're alone in a room. In modernism, there are a lot of wonderful collaborative projects that involve a lot of people. It would be impossible to do these things on your own. I keep thinking of the Modernist Archives Publishing Project, or MAP, which has this wonderful constellation of scholars who not only work on this particular archival project, but who also collaboratively write articles and books and regularly do poster presentations and other types of conference presentations. And to watch their vibrant exchanges of ideas over time has been an enormous privilege because you can see that the years of them interacting with one another has created a really multi-dimensional approach to this particular issue, which is trying to make the technical and economic details of modernist press publishing, especially the smaller presses, visible to your everyday modernist scholar. As the MAP team has been giving us more and more information, freely available online, about how modernists got their books published, you can also see that modernist practices like the Modernist Archives Publishing Project are collaborative in nature as well. In other words, Just as the modernists themselves created their art in collaborative communities, so too are modernist scholars working in the digital humanities, also working in communities. And so I see these beautiful parallels that are extremely productive and interesting. These are networks of favors, as well as intellectual exchange. So I also understand the intellectual community as an economic machine in which people who are more privileged by the system can kind of give their own different types of privilege to other people who may be in more precarious positions so essentially it allows us to exchange ideas but also different types of powerful resources
0: so as we finish up we'll circle back around the digital what do you think the digital humanities can offer modernist studies
1: I believe that the digital humanities offers us ways to optimize the scholarly practices that we already do. I strongly believe that it's powerful and exciting and creative and liberating to recognize that literature is a kind of data. It's a form of data, and it can be transformed into other kinds of data in order to reveal aspects about it that might not be immediately obvious if all we're doing is looking at the page in front of us. But really, um, it's also a very practical down-to-earth matter to me, because I want to do my work more efficiently, because, you know, I think everybody deserves some time off. Um, We deserve to get off our computer screens, and the way to do that is not to trash the computer (laughs) or computer screens, but instead to learn how to work with them more efficiently. So I'm really interested in talking with other scholars about the nuts and bolts of doing this stuff right, how not to lose your research um, if your hard drive is hijacked, or if you lose your passwords, or if you're not backing up properly. I would love to do some really practical workshops about how to deal with these very common problems. We can also use the digital humanities to reach a broader public, to figure out what the public is interested in in modernist studies and kind of meet these natural fans of modernists where they are which i think is pinterest it's instagram it's bots i also think that the digital humanities allows us to understand in a critical way the conditions under which reading writing and academic exchange happen so if we want to be truly responsible about what we're doing as a profession, we need to have a pretty good working knowledge of the technologies that underpin what we're doing, so that our practices don't unconsciously support neoliberalism, um, or a culture of overwork, uh, or the kind of biases that can be inherent in certain programs, right? So if we can apply our humanistic skills to look critically at the tools we use to, to do our jobs, then we can hopefully see if there's any problems with them, any moments where the tools that we're using somehow are in conflict with our values and principles as scholars. So the more that we reflect on how we work influences what we say in our work, I think the more likely we are to have a more freeing relationship to the tools that we use in Uh, you know, in our everyday lives. So essentially, this is not going to sound um, as exciting as some other answers could be. But I profoundly believe that the digital humanities can help us improve the mechanics of being a scholar and a teacher. With modernism per se, I think digital humanities offers us new ways to intervene in ongoing literary debates. This is what James O'Sullivan and I tried to do with the collection Reading Modernism with Machines, because so many people say that the result of quantitative formalist methods only reiterate what we supposedly already know. Now, I think that if digital humanists who are trained in modernism use tools to plumb questions or problems that are already of interest to the modernist community, That's a way of short-circuiting these common misunderstandings about the utility of modernism. So it's not always about starting new conversations. Sometimes it's about participating in ongoing ones in new ways.
0: Playing with that last question a bit, what do you think it is that modernist studies can offer the digital humanities?
1: I hope my answer is going to be a little bit counterintuitive because I'm not going to say that modernist studies can offer a uniquely privileged viewpoint on what it's like to live in an era of rapid technological change. Any literary period, any literary field, um, whether it's dispersed geographically or in time, any of these can claim that their period is a period of heightened technological change. It's not unique to modernism. Now the question of whether we think that we are objectively correct, and that there's some way in which we did. We we are studying a, a moment in time that is somehow privileged in the matter of technological change. That's even beside the point because making that claim as a way to justify doing digital humanities and modernism is not profoundly interesting to me anymore. Um, yeah, it's just every field is saying that right now, and it's not. I don't really find it compelling. So what we can offer what modernism can offer the digital humanities is cautionary tales about the lure of newness. We love to say that modernists make it new. To a degree, certainly they do. Um, But also those who study manifestos and the rhetoric of the avant garde recognize that this self proclaimed radicality has limits. To what degree do we believe modernists when they say that they are breaking with the past? Is there truly a break that we can see that's cataclysmic, that separates the Victorians from the modernists, and that separates the modernists from the postmodernists? In practice, we know that, you know, not so much. Sure. There are differences and many digital humanities are furiously trying to create quantitative data that seems to show obvious lines in the stylistic and temporal sands. But don't we know as modernists that this is a powerful argument that people are using to drive sales of little magazines, to become empresarios to get attention for the newest gallery opening, or the newest anthology publication. So I think what modernism can offer the digital humanities is a way of looking critically at these claims about newness, these claims about radical technological change. Do we really trust the modernist's own rhetoric? I hope not. I hope we study it with a critical eye, and I believe that modernist studies can do so with the digital humanities as well. There are plenty of critiques against the digital humanities. We're seeing many now. Uh, The LA Review of Books and the Chronicle of Higher Education are kind of infamous right now for giving a platform for people who just want to uh, critique the digital humanities and kind of take it down once and for all. Uh, But, you know, a lot of this is very bitter. Um, A lot of it is about, um, you know, leaving no trace of digital humanities, right? So instead of having this um, very unproductive moment where either DH is saintly and perfect and will save the humanities, or it's garbage, there's nothing in it, we're all fakers, right? I think modernist scholars, because we have these great practices of understanding manifestos and claims to newness, that we can take more of a middle ground and provide uh, more measured contributions to these arguments that are either for or against the digital humanities.
0: Great. And lastly, do you have any advice for those wanting to get involved in digital humanities?
1: First of all, become active on Twitter. Use a Twitter client to maintain a separate list of people who are engaged in the digital humanities and take some time every morning. It can be just five to 10 minutes, okay, or at night, whatever time is best for you. But just take five to 10 minutes a day and look at what those scholars are saying. Within a few months, you'll get a very, very good look at the shape of the field. And it allows you to keep up with the field in a similar way that looking regularly at the tables of contents at journals like Digital Humanities Quarterly and Digital Humanities Les Champs Numeriques would do. The second is to go to workshops. Um, Obviously the most famous I think is the Digital Humanities Summer Institute, DHSI, that's held every June at the University of Victoria. This can become expensive because it's essentially a one week or two week long camp. So try to search for what funds are available to help you out. DHSI has a generous number of scholarships that anyone can apply to, and perhaps your institution might be able to help you out um, with some of the housing opportunities there. If you're on the other side of the Atlantic, Oxford's annual summer school may be a little bit um, easier for you to get to. On a more general note, don't try to learn at all. Digital humanities is a very big field right now. So instead of trying to swallow everything as a whole, start with a specific interest. Are you interested in distant reading? Or are you more interested in textual encoding or digital pedagogy? Are you a minimal computing person or are you interested in high power grants? Do you want to build tools or do you want to critically analyze tools? Do you want to create objects in social media or do you want to critically analyze those social media objects? So essentially, try to um, acknowledge that DH is a very big field with multiple parts to it and try to focus in on what most interests you. And finally, think hard about how your specific field can benefit from the digital humanities. There are many jobs um, that are based in libraries or digital humanities centers where you are going to be expected to be a jack-of-all-trades and to help specialists who are from all humanities fields and all literary sub However, if you are more interested in having a job in your field, say, I want to be a, a Renaissance scholar, but who uses digital humanities components? Or I would like to study rhetoric, um, but I want it to be digital rhetoric, right? So if you want those kind of jobs, then spend some time thinking about the specific people in your field who are do, doing the digital humanities. So both of those pieces of advice are really about finding your niche. Start small and find your own domain and then use your networks on Twitter and at DHSI to build your skills outward.
0: Thanks, Shauna. It was a massive privilege having you on the show. And thank you to all our listeners at home. See you.